0: support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at texasmutual.com.
1: From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, Governor Abbott delivers the State of the State address. The state of our state has never been more exceptional. We'll have reaction. And a discovery of lost documents reveals the truth about the 1910 Slocum Massacre in East Texas. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Governor Greg Abbott delivered his biannual State of the State Address, outlining his vision for Texas and emergency items that he wants taken up early in the legislative session. Abbott named seven emergency items that lawmakers can vote on immediately, cutting property taxes, ending COVID-19 restrictions, school vouchers, school safety, making bail more difficult, border security, and cracking down on fentanyl. Hardworking Texans produced the largest property, or largest budget surplus in Texas history. That money belongs to you, the taxpayers. We should return it to you with the largest property tax cut in the history of the state of Texas. This session, we must shut and lock that revolving door by passing laws that keep dangerous criminals behind bars and holding accountable the judges who let them out. Reacting to Abbott's address, Rochelle Garza, president of the Texas Civil Rights Project. Garza is also the former Democratic nominee for attorney general.
2: The Texas legislature is sitting on a historic surplus. It's 30 billion plus that we're sitting on and this makes it a critical moment to invest in our communities and the future of our state. And what we've seen is that session after session, our governor and and state officials have prioritized themselves. And they, they do that because most Texans aren't paying attention. But the Texas Civil Rights Project is. We're watching and we're ready to hold our government accountable because that money belongs to Texas communities and it should be invested in our needs, needs that have been long neglected.
1: Uh, he did talk about... Cutting property taxes, that's one of his emergency items. Is that in line with your view or in conflict with your view?
2: Texas Civil Rights Project is a, is a civil rights organization, and we are really concerned about the issues that he was talking about around Operation Lone Star, hardening bail policies, and, and going after additional voting rights that we, that we are trying to protect. Uh, The the problem that we have here with Governor Abbott is that there is no accountability for what he did to voting rights in the last session. Um, There was no talk about how it has shut people out of of the ability to to cast their ballot. Um, He is asking for additional funds for Operation Lone Star that is not only illegal, but is harming Texas community. So those are the things that we are concerned about in terms of of where he is spending or prioritizing the dollars that we have.
1: So but when he talks about cutting property taxes I think is should there be some awareness that there is a large percentage of Texans that are renters they won't benefit from a property tax cut but you know they do pay property taxes through through their rent it's unlikely that their rent will be lowered when the property tax cut comes into place. And these tend to be the most vulnerable Texans that do need services so that they can eventually become property owners.
2: That's, um, that's a fair assessment of what is going on. Look, we need, to, we need to use the surplus that we have to benefit all Texans. It, it is a historic number. And, and the fact that we aren't turning around and investing in the most vulnerable populations that we have in our communities, building up infrastructure, investing in education, making sure that folks that wouldn't otherwise benefit from, from a cut in property tax do benefit, uh, we, need to, we need to take care of those things. We need to take care of everyday Texans.
1: Uh, Governor Greg Abbott, again, is talking about uh, vouchers with his school savings account. Scheme that he's proposing. Does the Texas Civil Rights Project uh, have a view on uh, vouchers? And you know, the projection is if vouchers come online, that it will take money away from the traditional public school system.
2: We we are a civil rights organization, so we're we're more more focused on the three issue areas that we address, which is protecting Texans' right to vote, uh, protecting. Uh, Border communities, making sure that we have a humane uh, process along the along the U.S.-Mexico border, and and ensuring that um, those that are that find themselves in the criminal justice system are treated fairly and with dignity. Those are the main issue areas that we work on.
1: Were you concerned that Governor Greg Abbott held his state of the state address, uh, not in front of the joint session of the legislature, not in a public venue, but at a private corporation where uh, the media was not allowed to uh, attend and and cover. It was uh, basically a private event.
2: I think that's par for the course, unfortunately. Government should absolutely be accessible to the people. They, They are accountable to us, the public. And making sure that we have access to what our government officials are saying and doing, not only with our dollars, but with our government, is critical. And, you know, we are seeing how how this governor is taking advantage of the fact that the Texans aren't tuning in to what is happening. And And that's why it's important. That's why the work of, of our organization, the Texas Civil Rights Project, is important. We are raising awareness about what is happening in the legislature, what is being decided. We are working with coalition partners and with communities on the ground to make sure that folks are engaged and they can come to the Capitol and speak up on on all of these issues that are impacting all of our lives.
1: I'm wondering if I can ask you about the latest development with uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton who uh, you were the Democratic nominee for attorney general in the last general election. Uh, so you faced him at the ballot box. Uh, but we now have that the uh, federal prosecutors, the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., they're taking over the corruption investigation into Paxton after the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Antonio recused itself, uh, was recused from the probe And they are looking into uh, how Paxton is accused of taking bribes to benefit a political donor who also employed a woman who uh, Paxton is alleged to have had an an uh, extramarital affair with. And also uh, this comes one week after Paxton agreed to apologize and pay over $3 million in taxpayer money to settle a whistleblower lawsuit with four of the employees that he's accused, who accused him of these crimes. So do you have a reaction to th- these latest developments with, with Paxton?
0: No
2: one is above the law, including the chief legal officer of the state. Tim Paxton has uh, been in hot water for a long time. Uh, he has been acting with impunity and taking advantage of his position. Uh, he needs to be held accountable. And and I am, I am glad that 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 is moving forward and so that we can move forward as a state. Politicians need to be held accountable just like any other person.
1: Well, how many years has this gone on that, uh, Paxton has been able to avoid accountability for alleged, uh, securities fraud indictment that he has, he has been, been using his office and his position and his political power in order to avoid, um, having to have a day in court.
2: Seven years. No regular Texan would have the benefit of that. It's very clear that that Ken Paxton has been abusing his power and taking advantage of his position, a duly elected position by the people of Texas. And it's time that he is held accountable for for his bad actions.
1: And, of course, uh, we can anticipate that uh, Ken Paxton is going to say that this is the weaponization of the Justice Department by the Biden administration targeting him because he is a conservative?
2: Look, the investigation into Ken Paxton started before the current president got into office. Uh, Ken Paxton is is someone that doesn't believe the law applies to him and has acted that way. He needs to be held accountable for his, his bad acts.
1: Rochelle Garza is the president of the Texas Civil Rights Project and is the former Democratic nominee for attorney general. A bill filed Thursday in the Texas legislature would ban the placement of polling locations on college campuses. House Bill 2390 was authored by District 72 Representative Kerry Isaac, whose district includes Comal and Hayes County. Katja Eurisman is the Voting Rights Project Manager for Common Cause Texas.
3: I think this bill uh, actually only continues to penalize counties trying to make uh, proactive efforts to ensure every eligible voter and every eligible registered voter has a chance to make their voices heard in this election. Uh, As we've already seen in past elections, you know, turnout at best has hit 52% 52% in, in election cycles that had more investment and historic investment than ever before. Um, but across the nation, young voter turnout has uh, been 27%. And young voters are still, you know, climbing uh, their way to be able to have full access. Um, and this, this new bill filed by Rep. Isaac um, sends us, you know, three steps backwards to ensuring that young voters have, uh, you know, access to free and fair elections that they're entitled to.
1: So we have seen efforts not as overt as to try to pass a law to prevent putting a polling site at a college campus, but we've seen polling places somehow not be put at college campuses around the state of Texas, haven't we? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, In the 86th session, I believe, uh, House Bill 1888 uh, prohibited uh, or changed the rule around mobile voting locations, which had previously been used to um, provide uh, mobile voting locations on college campuses. We saw a lot of legal fights with uh, Prairie View A&M um, and uh, Texas State and UT Austin and a number of different you know counties that were trying to use campuses to make sure that student voters had access. Um, and that was just one of the most recent laws that changed the uh, ability for campus polling locations to exist. We still have yet to have an affirmative law on the books that you know, provided or required on campuses that had substantial eligible voters, um, the right to, 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 at, to access their uh, you know, vote near them without needing to take off work, to find a car, to, provide, to, to find public transit to, to vote outside of their po- uh, campus location.
1: I hate to ask you to, you know, look into the mind of a state representative, uh, <laughs> but uh, any idea why Representative Isaac would want to prohibit putting polling sites on college campuses? Uh,
3: we haven't seen any uh, explicit, you know, uh, expressions of, of why uh, they don't believe that students should should have the right to have a, a polling site where they live, where they work, where they Spend most of their days, it seems like a pretty unabashed, uh, you know, reversal from the rights that that students, but also people across the country fought for, which was the right to, to vote in free and fair elections. And um, it seems like a, a concern that Rep. Isaac or uh, members of the caucus might have after, you know, young voters have rose in, in numbers over the last four years. Since 2018, I think youth voter registration rates for 18 to 29 year olds rose 14 percent. Um, and the census data showed that young people are, and especially young voters of color, are the largest voting block, uh, and growing to be the largest voting block uh, over the next 10 years um, and were the drivers of our population growth. So um, I think this bill really does say the quiet part out loud that if the population growth of Texas is being led by voters of color and young voters, then um, limiting their access is, is an unfortunate goal um, from, from certain representatives filing this bill.
1: And then there's a cynical view that uh, some people would say these young voters are are woke and that they will vote for progressive uh, candidates.
3: You know, I think people are saying uh, about both uh, both sides about young voters. They say young voters don't turn out. They're lazy. They're apathetic. And now they're saying, you know, they turn out too much or that they, uh, they shouldn't have access to, uh, you know, easy, uh, like, locations for them to cast their ballot. So I think you know, and we're saying both out of both sides of our mouth. Then, then the people that are that are looking at young voters is anything other than uh, a group that should be mobilized to access their rights as as freely as other populations, especially you know older voters, um, then I think that it might be looking at young voters with with ill content.
1: So we have a constitutional amendment signed by Richard Nixon that lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, but are uh, is that a protected class? So, if this were to become law, could this be overturned with a lawsuit looking at the Voting Rights Act, or is this something that the state legislature ab- absolutely could actually do?
3: You know, I think that like groups like Common Cause Texas and, and other voting rights organizations would use every tool in our toolbox to fight back against this law if it does get signed onto the books. You know, I think the Twenty-sixth Amendment. Um, does guarantee, you know, the rights for young people to access um, the right to vote. And, and so using that constitutional consideration and, and their constitutional right, looking at um, the Voting Rights Act, which we've seen since Shelby County in 2013, Texas lawmakers have taken every excuse possible after no longer being required to pre-clear their election changes to limit access for, for voters, especially increasingly diverse voters in Texas to access their rights. Uh, I, I think they're Uh, There definitely will be long fights ahead of us, both in in, uh, committee hearings and then uh, in any other means that we need to 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 fight this bill from becoming uh, law.
1: So this is just one bill, but there are other bills being filed, not exactly like this, but maybe coming from the same well where there are still lawmakers who want to restrict voting in Texas. I mean, are you seeing other bills like this. This is not the anomaly. This might be the most egregious.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think you're right that this bill says the quiet part out loud about specifically targeting young voters. But last year in in SB1, we saw the initial language of, of that bill uh, talk about preserving the purity of the ballot box, which has historically uh, dark, uh, you know, history associated with that language, associated with, you know, uh, racism and, and prohibiting uh, access for, for black and brown Americans to, to have their right to vote. And I think with SB1 and, and that original text, and then also in this new legislative session, we've seen a number of different bills filed to attempt to criminalize and, and inhibit access for, for voters. Um and and also we've seen bills filed that are attempting to uh, you know improve and cure um, the 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 already existing barriers that are keeping folks from being able to access their rights. And so one thing that that Common Cause Texas wants to, to make known is that um, you know while we're going to continue to fight defensive battles to, to make sure that bills like um, Isaac's uh, SB or HB 2390 don't get uh, don't get get signed into law and, and don't penalize or inhibit young voters, um, we also want to see the Texas legislature use their power to uh, to sign into law things that will improve Texas's standing as, as currently 46th, the hardest state to vote in, uh, and, and 41st in turnout in the nation.
1: Katja Ersman is the Voting Rights Project Manager for Common Cause Texas. In 1910, In Slocum, Texas, an unincorporated community in Anderson County near Palestine in East Texas, a white mob attacked and murdered multiple African Americans. The numbers aren't clear. It's estimated it could be as high as 100. The uncertainty is due to a lack of official documentation about the Slocum massacre, which is why for decades the state of Texas declined to officially acknowledge that it happened. Only in the last few years has that changed— Due to the work of descendants of Slocum and the work of writer E. R. Bills, now a trove of court documents about the Slocum massacre has been uncovered by Stephen A. Reich, professor of history at James Madison University. E. R. Bills joins me to explain the importance of this find.
0: A professor from James Madison University basically found a document. It's called Ex Parte James Ferger et al, and it. It basically is a court document that contains the testimony of I don't know sixty or seventy uh, witnesses regarding the Slocum massacre. You know the guys that Judge Benjamin Gardner, the district court judge there in Anderson County, uh, basically indicted for some of the murders of the Slocum massacre. They transferred the case to Harris County and it languished there, and and some of the defendants remained in custody. Eventually, they had a lawyer from Palestine uh, file for a writ of habeas corpus there at the state uh, court of criminal appeals. Basically, they wanted to receive bail. Now, Judge Gardner had refused them bail. And I think in the back of my mind, I think he did that because he wasn't sure that there was going to be any justice meted out. I think he just did it to inconvenience them. I'm not sure. It's just speculation. But anyway, they wound up I think in early May 1911, there in Austin, and so people testified, and eventually they were they were granted $1,500 bail, so they released and they were never prosecuted and never suffered, you know, punishment outside of the inconvenience uh, of being in custody. But the record for that particular hearing remained at the uh, state court of criminal appeals so basically that's what we have and in this record which is 350 pages legal pages actually long um there are 40 witnesses for the state and i don't know about 20 for the defendants and uh it's just sort of incredible i mean i obviously when i've when i've written about this in the past i know you've done some reporting on it you know, a lot of it was from newspaper coverage and, um, and uh, you know, oral traditions, stuff like that. We didn't have too much, you know, firsthand testimony. But in this record, there's just a, a clear pattern <laughs> that, that, uh, that emerges in terms of what happened. And, in fact, uh, one of the victims, one of the kids who got shot, one of the black kids that got shot, Charlie w- Wilson, he actually identified Isom Gardner, one of the, you know, men who was indicted in court, said he shot me and pointed him out in court. I think he was 14. Pretty brave at the time because at that, at that time, this this he identifies him. He says, that's the guy who shot me. And he also uh, talks about Jim Spurger, uh, Will Burley's wife. That was the first man killed in Houston County. She testifies that Jim Spurger shot her husband on their porch. Ermi. Ermi Burley was her name. Will Burley's wife. She points to Jim Spurden and says he's the one who shot him. Then Dick Wilson's wife Margaret testifies that Spurger and Andrew Jenkins murdered Sam Baker, who's one of the one of the names, one of the victims listed on the historical marker. And she also says that uh, Isam Gardner shot her, sh- shot her son Jeff, and Steve Jenkins shot her husband, shot her husband Dick. And Curtis Berger shot Ben Dancy, the three men that were sitting with Sam Baker's body. So you have people testifying and pointing these people out in court in front of a judge. It was all for the bail hearing, but they went on record. And it's just sort of amazing to me uh, to stumble onto it. And, and I was just kind of
1: shocked. When uh, you were first started doing your reporting on the Slocum Massacre, and and I followed afterwards, there were still plenty of people who were telling us it never happened. It was a myth that this was something that was invented because we couldn't find any documents other than newspaper accounts that supported it. But here it is. This is something that shows you. It actually happened, and all the people who were denying it, this shows, they were wrong.
0: Yeah, they were wrong, and this is just, so if you remember, because we've, you know, as you said, you've done some reporting on this. uh, Judge Gardner, at some point, you know, bodies were disappearing, and people were fleeing. Uh, Perpetrators were fleeing the area because the rangers had showed up, and militia had showed up. So he basically arrested and indicted, well, yeah, got indictments against the people he could that he knew were still around. This is just the tip of the iceberg probably, but he did what he could. He didn't try to wait until the dust settled until they could try to round up all the bodies. These particular casualties and the witnesses who are aware um, are available, um, they, they testified in, in open court during this, this uh, bail hearing. But what was amazing to me was the the defense's uh, witnesses basically made the prosecution's case. You know, I, I mean, one of them said, "Well, there seemed to be a change in the Negro attitude after they burned that one in Cherokee County. That these Negroes were more insolent and impudent, and that they started carrying guns." Well, yeah, if somebody burns burns a black man in 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 the county over, maybe you carry a gun. Maybe, maybe you're a little worried, especially if that guy, it looks like now and even then, was innocent. Because a lot of black people in the, in the county over, Cherokee County, they tried to stop the mob because they, they knew he was innocent. Um, and then you have guys talking about, in this testimony, you have white people complaining that black people wouldn't give them the road. In those days, if a white man came up in a, in a cart, and horses, you know, a carriage... If black people were on the road in their own cart or carriage or even walking, they were supposed to get out of the way. And so they're complaining about, you know, that they're complaining about uh, black black Texans not being respectful and they're being sassy and bigoted. They're accusing them of being bigoted because they don't observe the white privilege. Right, and so um, they were,
1: and so they were using this. This was the defense testimony yeah, defense to justify is, yeah, is, the attack.
0: Yeah, they, this is the defense witnesses. They're saying stuff like this. And I'm like, well, maybe that played well then. But now you read it and you're just like, what? So, it's incredible.
1: So it's still unclear how many people were killed in the yes. Slocum Massacre, where there are people who say, yeah, it happened, but wasn't that big of a deal. And then we hear from other people that they say it was hundreds of individuals who were killed. Do we get a better idea of, of the casualties number from, the, from this testimony, from these documents?
0: Not exactly. Like I said, it's just confined to the, to the men they indicted and the witnesses as, as, as the witnesses to the murders that these uh, defendants were indicted for. Now, obviously, in the book, I talk about uh, the cases Warren Petinos he's he's uh passed away but him having talked about his his forebear having been involved in the massacre and fled to Georgia. You know, some of that went on. So we don't know how many uh you know perished over the two and a half, three days of the killing. Um, but even the sheriff at the time, the Amherst County Sheriff William H. Black, he said there's their bodies everywhere. If the buzzards are going to get most to most of them first you know we, we're not going to be able to to get it all to get them all rounded up and, and I don't see any reason why why folks started killing them so you know I don't know I mean I I'd be hard-pressed to interpret what he meant but I would suggest that bodies everywhere and the buzzards are gonna get most to first. get to most of them first it was a lot more than six or seven eight it would have been more like twenty or thirty or forty, maybe dozen. And then, of course, there's the, the discussions. Nobody mentions the mass graves in the testimony, but of course, in the research you and I uncovered, there were also mass graves in the area. So we really don't know. We just have definitive as evidence that that uh, people were killed and that people were white people were going through the black community and killing people. And in fact, what what jumped out at me is that they were definitely going after prominent blacks. I mean, they were going after, they list, they, they list Abe Wilson, you know, they list the Hollies. And supposedly, even in one part of the testimony, somebody said there was a list of 25 blacks that they wanted to kill, but it suggested that people came from all over the county and just started killing people in general.
1: E.R. Bills is the author of multiple books, including the 1910 Slocum Massacre and Active Genocide in East Texas, as well as other books and articles about Texas history. He has written about the discovery, about the historic Slocum Massacre documents, in the current issue of the Fort Worth Weekly. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can write to us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters programs on our website at tpr.org. And you can download and subscribe to us wherever you get your great podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas
0: Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at texasmutual.com.